But yeah, if you ever find a book you want to read, we can read it on the show together. John, are we having a moment right now, you and I? Reading a book together like friends? I'm not sure that's having a moment, okay, but I think I that's not. a useful See, thing. People, John's afraid of intimacy and true friendship, like the kind I offer. And this is why I'm on the fence about him. And that's why we have to go through a few more questions in the future regarding Klosterman before I can make my ultimate decision on him. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Oh. Jinx, you owe me a soda. Oh. oh. What's on your mind this week? All right. We were talking about cloud seeding. Yeah. And I remember bringing up conspiracy and theories. Yeah. Yes, and terraforming. But that is not where conspiracy theories lie. At least none that I found. <laughs> True. They all lie in cloud seeding or chemtrails, whatever they call them. Any kind of condensation that happens when a plane is in the air. Sure. I don't know much about conspiracy theories so do tell so apparently i don't either because i when i brought it up i think i mentioned something about brainwashing you did you did yes well that seems to be a very like minor thing that's mentioned when it comes to chemtrails Hmm. apparently people think about a lot of other things with regards to chemtrails like what one they think that they cause global warming and that the government is using it to control the weather well I mean, cloud seeding, right? Like, that right. is trying to control the weather. I think it's more nefarious. Okay, Like, sure, there's this sinister plan to heat up and cool the world in a way that's going to... Unhelpful? Yeah. I don't know. Bring an end to human beings or something. It seems like an odd thing for the government to be trying to do, but sure. Right. I mean, I really don't know, but these are things they seem to believe. What was another one? I think it was that they put something in the chemicals... To cause respiratory diseases. Like asthma and stuff? Yeah. And that one's really Mm. funny to me. Because it makes me think, if you live in a city or in a relatively urban place, and you see cars driving all the time, and you notice all the smog coming out of the mufflers constantly, and if you live in like a city like Long Beach, for example, you know, there's an oil refinery not too far from here. And you see all the smog constantly coming up out of the vents or pipes or whatever they are. Exhaust, yeah. Yeah, sure. Instead of seeing this very, like, obvious cause for what could be causing the the respiratory diseases, you stop and think to yourself, no, that doesn't make sense. You know what makes sense? Those really high up in the air streams of condensated moisture that look sort of like clouds, but not really. That's definitely what's causing asthma in, in these parts. Who are these people? Are I they like right wing nut jobs? Do you know anyone who actually believes these things? No, not personally. Well, okay. kind of. I do kind of know someone who I don't think they're as ardent that it's causing these sort of issues, but they definitely think there's something nefarious going on. Yes, something sinister afoot. Okay. Because of cloud seeding and chemtrails. And they're always like, do you ever look up into the sky? I'm like, yeah, doesn't everyone? You see planes flying by and it happens, it happens. They're like, no, man, no, the government's doing something to us. And I just, I don't understand exactly what it is they're trying to do to us. Don't ask me. Yes. So, but in general, because I, I in, in my mind, I think about these people as being kind of fringe leftist hippie people. But 
I feel like more recently, a lot of these government conspiracies have risen up on the right wing. So from what I read, it does seem to generally be more right wing people who I guess are That's interesting, really anti-government. Because you wouldn't normally expect environmental conspiracy theories to come out of the right wing. I think it's just sort of a fear of big government. They blame the federal government. They think the federal government's up to something or it's a global conspiracy between all the other large countries okay. trying to control human population, which is another one. Mm. That's a weird one to me. Human population control. like Oh, like sterilization? I guess. Maybe that's what it is. What do you mean by controlling the population? Like controlling people's behavior? No, like the actual like population size, which I, I guess sterilization makes sense. Okay. It's weird how vague everyone is about what it is the trails are actually doing. Mm. They just know that they're doing something. And I guess I haven't had the fortune of finding some detailed, long, very thorough... Explanation of these things? Yes. Like, I haven't run into this essay about what exactly it is that they're doing and how it's negatively impacting the world. Well, how do you think these ideas arise? Because they must come from something or somewhere. Generally, I would assume... Like this one probably comes from, I don't know, ignorance. There's a lot of people that are ignorant that don't think crazy things. Right. Like I can think about people that I went to high school with who know nothing about anything and they don't just invent shape-shifting lizard people to rule the world, you know? Mm. Maybe they're looking for something, searching for something. Maybe they're unhappy with themselves or maybe they're unhappy with how things are. And instead of believing maybe life is random and sometimes people are dealt good hands and other people are dealt bad hands or Hmm. instead of accepting that some people earn their way places they think there's just a conspiracy going on to keep good people out of important places yeah conspiracy theories are interesting generally like they don't obviously make sense but right they do have this weird attractiveness to a lot of people Mm. And it it's odd that they persist. Right. The conspiracies around international finance and the Rothschilds and so many mm-hmm. different things. The fact that they persist, not just for a long time, but through generations, is hard for me to understand. But clearly there's something that gets into people's minds and there's an attractiveness there of some sort. Maybe it's also sort of like a, as we start to learn more and more about the world, Certain mythology sort of died out. I'm sure a hundred years ago, people probably still believed in vampires and werewolves and fairies. True. Yeah, probably. Things like that. I mean, not to say that there probably aren't people that believe in that now. Many fewer. But as we learn more, I think conspiracy theories are sort of the contemporary version of those sorts of things. Really? Hmm. Yeah. In a way, it kind of creates this new mythology for people who want something to believe in that's more than there is. Well, it definitely gives people the ability to blame an external entity, right? Which is what a lot of mythologies around witches and vampires and things like that were designed to do. Where witches are terrible, they're causing all the problems in our society. Blame the witches, go drown the witches. So yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, yeah, sure. That makes a certain amount of sense. And so I think that's kind of a big part of it. Hmm. I also think some people found a conspiracy theory that may have turned out to be true. I don't have any examples, but I'm sure there have been some. Well, there definitely have been conspiracies, right? And right. You, you know what I think a lot of this kind of derives from? Mm. Well, I'm not sure that a lot of it derives from this, but I think this definitely added to it. The growth in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s in secret government action, like covert government action. Oh, So the growth of things like the FSB and the KGB in Russia and 
growth of like the SS in Germany and the CIA in the US, these organizations obviously did a bunch of things that were sneaky, to say the least, right? Right. And secret police didn't really exist in 1800 in the way that they exist now. Like there were some things that they did in terms of spying, but it was dramatically more limited than in the 50s. And Mm -hmm. I think the growth in the real stuff like that made it easier to believe the government was doing all sorts of other stuff. That makes sense. Because it is a bit baffling when you think about how large some of these organizations are to just try to figure out what they're doing. And obviously, organizations get really big and somehow there's something to do. Like, it's insane to me that a company like Google has, Mm -hmm. what, 100,000 people working for it or something like that? I mean, obviously, they do a bunch of other things like their self-driving car stuff and like a lot of their other technological research and trying to, you know, push forward Mm -hmm. in different ways and they make phones now and they do do, they do a bunch of stuff but Mm -hmm. that's still such an enormous number of people when you think about that fundamentally most of what they do is run a website i suppose i suppose that is quite a large number of people yeah like try to imagine and put into buckets what those people do that's so many people you know the website quora right yes yes so in comparison quora has 130 people that works for it that also feels like a lot well, but do a comparison, right? Yes. No, Google I has a thousand I... times more people. Right. <laughs> like, is there a thousand times more work? It seems unlikely. But somehow they put them all to work <laughs> and they're hiring more people all the time. So Clearly. I mean, they must have a lot to do then. Right. But like, it's hard to, in your head, think about what exactly are all of these people doing That's fair. all day. I guess that makes sense. And the same thing applies in my head to like the CIA or even the US military. Like, I mean, I know that we have military bases all over the world, but it's like 3 million people. That's a lot of people. (laughs) What are all these 3 million people doing? That's hard to grapple with a little bit. So I can see how you could come out with conspiracy theories when you're like this many people, they're clearly doing crazy evil things. Yeah, they're up to something. Especially when you have a regime like the Nazis in World War II, where after the regime falls, you see all of these crazy things that they did. In terms of eugenics, in terms of obviously the Holocaust and research on human subjects and things. Right. They did tons of just crazy, weird, destructive things. Mm -hmm. And nobody fully understood what was happening until after the fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you believe that other governments are doing similar things and then they just haven't gotten caught because they haven't collapsed. Like it's a very interesting thing to compare that regime to like Stalin's Russia and to Mao's China because they didn't do as crazy of things in terms of like their scientific experiments on humans Mm -hmm. in Russia and in China, but they did a lot of crazy things and they're not fully admitted to even now because I mean, Russia, the regime has changed, but they never kind of had to face the evils that the regime perpetrated. Right. And in China, it's the same way. Like the people from that era are revered. And so we don't have a full accounting of what happened or who did what and things like that and so it's easy i think for a lot of people to believe that all sorts of governments especially the rich ones Mm -hmm. and like the u.s are doing things like that right you know another thing i also Mm. think might lead to people having conspiracy theories is just how fast technology evolved okay we went from making a car in the early 1900s landing on the moon in the 60s i could tell people might be a little 
unsure or confused by how that happened. Yeah, that kind of acceleration does seem perhaps daunting or hard to grapple with, yeah. So I can see how people might be like, yeah, man, aliens, bro. It's the only way to explain it. How else could we have done it? Yeah, I mean, I think of the technological advance since we've been alive, and I'm kind of stunned into silence by it. Like the fact that we can have a call like this across the world for free instantly Mm. and have it be this high quality. Like it's bizarre to think about that fact. Yeah. The fact that something like podcasts exists, like up until what, 15 years ago, it was Mm. just listen to the radio. Internet radio was barely a thing. And now it's changed 100%. And having a phone that's also a computer is pretty amazing considering what people used to have to do in the 80s and the 90s even yeah and now it's just oh i need to learn something let me just lick it up in my palm really quickly can i complain about something since you bring that up i'm gonna ignore the thing that i wanted to talk about and we can talk about that next week okay there's something that i've been hearing over and over again of late and Mm -hmm. it's related to what you just said so this idea that you can just pull out your phone and look at google and learn whatever you want right Mm-hmm. This has become pervasive. Everyone thinks, oh, you can just find anything you want on the internet, which objectively is true. And if you look at it simplistically, it's true. Mm-hmm. It's not really true. And I know this is a different thing from what we were kind of just talking about. <laughs> but there are a lot of different professors that I've had when I was at university. There are a lot of different people who I listen to in the media, who I respect a lot, who mm-hmm. talk about this sort of thing when they talk about, especially with educational reform. And they talk mm-hmm. about, you know, we don't really need to focus on teaching people things. We need to focus on teaching people critical thinking or skills or other right. non-informational topics. I think this is completely idiotic. Wait, what's completely idiotic? The idea that you don't need to learn information or that Mm. we shouldn't be focused on people learning information. Now, on one hand, I used to very much believe this. When I was in school, I very much believed this. I was an adherent to the idea that you want to understand things, not know things. Mm. Since going out into the world and being exposed to different people in different places and different jobs and, and various things, I've realized that that is an insane stance. Because maybe it's less valuable than it used to be. And I don't think we should be hugely focused on memorizing like entire poems and things. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't think you need to memorize a 10 page poem. That's not super useful. Granted. Agree to disagree, John. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) But knowing things generally helps you to think about things. And here's what I think is the fundamental flaw in the thinking of everybody with this, like you can look up and ask a question on Google and get the answer, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I want to know, I don't know, who was president during the War of 1812, I can go onto my phone and check who was president during the War of 1812. But in order to come to deeper insights or to understand things, you have to know that piece of information and be able to connect it with a hundred other pieces of information that relate to it. Right. And that allows you to get to an insight. You can't be looking up every individual piece of information. To come to deeper insights, to create new knowledge, to create new concepts, you need to be able to have a bunch of information in your head at the same time and pull out threads that connect all of them. Mm. And you can't have that information in your head at the same time if you have to look up each fact individually and like write it down and correlate it. But see, here's the thing. When you look something up like that and you see, oh, so-and-so was the president. You could also be like, oh, I wonder what caused that and find a book or something that you could buy and read and and 
fill in all those gaps. Right. But the point is you have to fill in those gaps. Like the digital prosthetic of Google or your phone does mm -hmm. not substitute having knowledge in your head because you cannot think about things that are in your phone. You can only think about things that are in your head. And unless the information is in your head, you can't understand it and you cannot relate it to other things and you cannot draw out deeper insights and deeper connections. That's true. So we've devalued keeping information in your head a lot. And we've devalued knowing things generally. Somebody that knew a bunch of things 30 years ago would have been very respected as being smart. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that they're smart. They just know a bunch of trivia. That doesn't matter. But it does matter. We've generally devalued information. We've generally devalued learning things. You really think so? Absolutely. Like, especially really? when you talk about people with education, like people try to take the focus far away from actually learning information. Because I've always felt that generally when I talk to someone, and even if I know the tiniest thing about something they're talking about that maybe they're really well versed in, they always seem pleasantly or, or at the very least mildly surprised that I do know anything about it at all. Okay. They're just mildly surprised you know things, Mike. Right. But then in further conversations, when even I know a little tidbit about something or a lot about a particular thing, generally they'll be like, wow, you know a lot. You must be pretty smart, even if I don't know much at all, right? Sure. And I think that idea that if you know things, you're smart still kind of exists. Yeah, it still persists to a certain extent, I guess, but less than it used to be. Like that used to be what it was to be smart, to know a bunch of stuff. And granted, I don't think that that's accurate. I think you need to be able to think well, not just know things. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't see where you're coming from there. I got to admit. Well, the conversation around education and the conversation around what people should be focusing on has definitely been pulled away from learning information. No? You, do you disagree with that? Have you I've, not heard this general conversation around, like, you can just look up things on Google, so why do you need to know stuff? I mean, I've never heard anyone say, you could just find something on Google, why do you need to know anything? I mean, I'm sure I have, but I guess it hasn't affected me the way it's affected you because generally if I hear someone say that the assumption I come with is you must know something or you understand something or if you're going to google something it's to learn about it not to be like oh x plus y equals z without understanding why x plus y equals z right obviously you're right that's the implicit internal contradiction around saying you can look things up is that you have to understand things in order to look things up so you need to have reference information in your head already. And you're right, it is to learn something, right? So mm -hmm. it is an odd concept. But I'm sure you've come across this concept that we don't need to teach kids as much just information. And we want to move away from things like rote learning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I that I've like this is widespread. had a few conversations about that in class as well. And I think that's, I agree with you. I think it's wrong. Everything sort of has its place in it, every sort of subject. You, know, you need rote learning for some things. It's not useless. Well, and whatever technique you want to use to learn something, you need to know th things. <laughs> right. You, know I mean? you need to know lots of information. And the more information you know, the easier it is to learn new things and the easier it is to understand concepts. Mm. And so it's just like, it, it just gives you so much more context. It's, it's like trying to find your way walking someplace. If you know a lot of things, it's like a bright sunny day. If you know nothing, it's like the middle of a moonless night and you just can't see anything. It's easier if you can see everything. It's true. Very true, John. So anyway, so that that's just something that I've been increasingly annoyed by because I've run into lots of different people talking about this and talking about education reform right. and talking about how 
it's almost anti-intellectual to focus on people learning a lot of dates and information and things. And I agree, there should be a focus also on developing skills. There should be a focus also on analyzing and criticism and thinking. Yeah, of course. But it definitely is a combination of everything, you know? Yeah, like there needs to be a lot of knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the easier everything is. Right. Especially for subjects like history. They are knowledge. That's basically what history Mm is. And I mean, even a skill, if say you're an auto mechanic, you have to know what an engine is, what the parts are, how they work before you can have the skills to fix them. Yeah, knowledge is an inseparable part of any skill. Like you can't speak a language if you don't know what the words are. You can't repair an engine if you don't know what a piston is and you don't know the different parts of the engine. So yeah, you're right, obviously. Like you need to know things. And I I, I just think a lot of people don't think about this rigorously enough. Or maybe they're just assuming that people understand that that's inseparable and that's included. I think it's always that people criticize something And then you'll have this movement of, oh, this way is wrong and it's been wrong and we should move to a different way of doing things. And so people immediately look at the old thing as bad and the new thing as good and never consider that there may be overlap. Well, and I mean, this does become a bit of an insidious thing because I can imagine listeners listening to this saying, you know, does this really matter? Like they're focused on things that are also good, like critical thinking and things. But this can be somewhat insidious. Because like I said, when I was at school, I very much internalized this idea. And I didn't really try to learn information. I picked up things naturally, because I read them, but I didn't try to use flashcards to put new vocabulary or new ideas into my head. I didn't really study in the traditional sense. Mm. And this was because as long as I understood a concept, I was like, I'm fine. I don't need to learn all of the information around it. But that definitely slowed my education down and my growth in certain subjects. Mm. And it's the kind of thing that changed my behavior in learning and not for the better. You know, when you talk about that, it always makes me think of that saying, if you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it, Mm. which to me just seems like a genius way of telling people to learn. Just read a book. But it's not just read a book. It's read a book and do everything you can to retain the information from the book. You want the book to be in your head. Right. Like you want all of that information to be a part of you. That is a much more thorough way of saying it. That's true. Well, no, I mean, you said it right. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I guess I see where your concern is now. It's to make sure not just to know things, but to really hold on to them and grow your base of information, right? Yeah, because accessing information is useful. But as you go through life, you make information a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. You understand the world by knowing things. And that's what I like about that saying, because, you know, if you understand the way things were or the way things are, then you can look forward and find solutions to problems as they arise as opposed to completely just letting things fall to the wayside or run into the same problem over and over again because you didn't see it i understand what you're saying and i I really like that saying because i think it sort of encapsulates what you're thinking to me anyways yeah it's closely related because i mean that's the other way of saying decision making that's informed by past experience is better. Yeah. It's absolutely true. But we can move on. I was just, yeah. I've been bothered by that in the educational debates of late. And it's, <laughs> I just needed to get that off my chest. John, just really quickly before we move on, hmm. just scorch earth the educational system. Just do it. Just revolt. Yeah, I'm not sure that that would go well. I think you might kill the pupils if you did that. Uh, obviously, they'd be empty, John. Don't just burn schools down with people in them. 
Right, summer break. Gotcha, gotcha. Arson, not homicide. I only endorse some crime. Murder is not one of them. I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started recording. We were going over what kind of things we could be improving on in the episode. As we always do. Yeah. And one of the things that came up were just people's overconfidence in opinions and ideas and the impact it has on society now as a whole. Because to me anyways, what I've noticed is, and you see this a lot with celebrities and pseudo celebrities and not celebrities even who feel a certain way or have a certain opinion or a certain idea. And obviously I'm not discouraging people to have opinions and ideas, but a lot of them sort of take these opinions and ideas and they turn them into this preachy monologue that condemns other people's ideas and opinions in favor of their own because they feel that their opinions and ideas are right. And that's fine. People aren't going to agree. But there's just this overconfidence. It just seems so arrogant and dangerous to me because I think it encourages people to feel that way about every opinion they have. Well, and I think what this gets to is we've been doing this show for a while. And as you said, Mm -hmm. we've been trying to improve. And I have come out sometimes pretty stridently with some strong opinions on here. And I mean, we've had a number of conversations debating because this is such a public forum and because mm-hmm. we have all sorts of people listening to the show now, how strong should we be when we express things? How confident do we have to be in order to say something? Like how 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 do we even express that nuance that you're just describing? Like because you don't want to come off as a crazy person when you don't know everything. Like obviously we talk about a wide range of subjects. Mm-hmm. We are not experts in all of these subjects. These are things that we're interested in, things that we're thinking about. And so it's difficult. And I think you and I find different places that we're comfortable with in terms of how strongly we are willing to express things that we maybe have passing interest in. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's a broader societal issue. Like it's a difficult thing to grapple with even in private when people know you well and you're trying to express something. Because even in that very limited setting, people misunderstand and misinterpret what you're saying and what you're thinking all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you're somebody like a celebrity or when you're somebody just does something in public, like what we're doing, mm-hmm. you bring on all sorts of other levels of misconception and people misconstruing what you're saying and misunderstanding what you're saying. And so that extra certainty is even more problematic. Yeah. And I have struggled with that a lot mm. throughout our episodes and just in general with people I talk to because as I've made this observation of people who become more confident and stronger willed in what they think is right, it's made me really insecure to ever just stand firmly on something. Yeah. Because I have this idea that even if my opinion is something that most people might agree with, or even if my idea is a good idea, there's still a chance I could be wrong. I could be missing something. Maybe somebody has a better idea or maybe somebody's opinion could be insightful to my opinion and I'm leaving things out and it just... Well, and it's it's a thoughtful response to this increased stridency. Like there are two responses, right? If people Mm -hmm. you disagree with are becoming more strident, then you can become more strident yourself and the volume level of the argument and the certainty level of both sides just gradually increases. And that's what we've been seeing. The other side is if you think generally the problem is people are too overconfident about things they don't know anything about then you turn down your confidence level because you think, well, we shouldn't be as confident. We should be more willing to hear disagreeing opinions and 
be open to being wrong about things. Yeah. And I think that that is a good response, but it's difficult because as the culture moves further and further down exaggeration and down toward absolute certainty about everything, if you turn down your certainty at all, it seems like you don't know anything or people completely dismiss you because people only want to listen to people that are 100% sure about everything. And I mean, this is where I am kind of a symptom of this, right? Because I often, I think, am perhaps not overconfident, but I... Mm. I would say you're overconfident. Sure, sure. That, that's entirely possible. And that's not to say that it's without merit. And here's another thing. I think there are a lot of people that are overconfident and rightfully so. Well, but that kind of means that they're not overconfident then, right? They're just confident. They're correctly confident. Proportionally confident. I think someone can have a lot of knowledge about something and still be overconfident. Just because you know a lot about something doesn't mean you know everything about something, right? Right, sure. But that means they're still overconfident. So not justifiably. They should have some confidence, but they shouldn't have as much as they have. Sure. Well, does that make sense? Oh, no, it does make sense. I just mean maybe they're right to feel overconfident because they know a lot. Well, that's not how I think of overconfidence. I think that's very confident if you maybe know a lot and you're very sure and you should be very sure. But like overconfident means you are more sure than you can justifiably be because... That's over. But anyway, sorry. Okay, we're getting off topic. All right, all right. Yes. What I mean is even then, even when you have people who are well-versed and intelligent and they feel very strongly about something, and again, maybe they do have the right to be that confident. Someone who may agree with them and may have not the same level of knowledge or the same level of information takes that opinion or that idea that they agree with and they run with, they push it as hard, they talk about it as widely as this person does. Maybe they they're missing things or don't understand things that those other people might, especially now because we live in a, in a day and an age where anyone can broadcast their opinion openly and freely and can access however many people find them likable and are willing to listen to them makes something like that pretty dangerous, I think. But why is it dangerous? Because they could be misinformed or they could be lacking information hmm. or... Maybe the way that they express their opinion could be, I don't know, aggressive, or it could inspire someone to do something that maybe they didn't mean to encourage. Yeah, that's the thing that I think is more right. destructive with this. I mean, obviously, there's the spread of misinformation, which is not spreading misinformation, I feel like it's such a low bar. Like, it should not be that difficult to not spread, obviously, wrong factual information. I sometimes feel like it's a game of telephone. Somebody has an idea and they express their idea because they have the platform to and then a bunch of other people sort of take that idea that they agree with and also spread it out but maybe not as well and it sort of just degenerates it's just more yeah. people are like yeah yeah that's the thing and and it becomes a caricature of itself yeah and i think that's just an issue for me anyways that i see yeah no i, I could be blowing it out of proportion you know well, I think you're completely right. It is an issue. And I think it's largely an issue because it makes having conversation about those topics very difficult. Anything that somebody expresses absolute certainty on, and increasingly, that's everything. And especially when you bring in kind of moral justification behind it, mm -hmm. that not only am I sure that this is completely true, but anyone that doesn't believe it is bad in some way, mm -hmm. it makes it extraordinarily difficult to have a conversation about that topic because either it's just a chorus of people agreeing or it becomes immediately very contentious mm. it's not like this is a completely new phenomenon i remember as a teenager i was talking to the parents of one of my friends back home 
And we got into a conversation about drug policy and how I thought we should legalize a lot of different drugs because bans are not necessarily that useful. My opinions become more nuanced with that over time. But mm -hmm. the, the mother of my friend could not even fathom that. That was the position of a bad person. Right. Only bad people would support that sort of policy. And mm -hmm. so it was like, well, we can't we can't discuss this. This is not this is not a thing that can be discussed. And so you can't have conversations. And for important topics that affect society, whether you're talking about gender interactions and like Me Too stuff, or uh -huh. if you're talking about politics or you're talking about economics, any any important topic that affects all of society, you have to be able to discuss with people in right. order to learn about it and in order to think about it and to progress. And if you can't, then it starts to become very difficult. And it also pushes people to extremes, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're absolutely sure about something and you can't accept that anyone disagrees with it at all, you're going to get brought over to a more extreme position gradually. And the opposition will get brought over to a more extreme position. And people in either camp will only generally talk to people in their own camp because they can't have a sophisticated conversation with people that oppose them. Um, or they're just going to get into a screaming match, which will push them further away from the opposition as well. So you're right, that excess certainty is difficult. But how, like, it, it's hard when you're expressing ideas publicly to mm -hmm. not stand behind them, because you also want to stand behind the things you're saying. You believe the things you're saying, you know? Right. That's true. I, I agree with that bit. You know, if, if you are uh, on a public forum or you're broadcasting your ideas out for other people to listen to them, you do want to be certain and you want to believe what you're saying. Because this is something I got into a lot with the early episodes of the show. Some <laughs> listeners will probably remember that for many of the topics we talked about, I would start almost every conversation with multiple caveats about what I'm saying. Right. Almost contradicting myself or bringing up counterexamples before I describe what I'm talking about. And it's the kind of thing where if you're trying to communicate an idea or you're trying to communicate information, starting out with caveats and counterexamples is just undermining yourself before you even come out with what you're trying to say. Yeah. And it might give people a more nuanced understanding of what you're describing. Right. It might make it more palatable to people who would disagree with you. But mm -hmm. it also makes it harder to grasp and less convincing. Or maybe not less convincing, but like... Less compelling. Less forceful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I think in this time that I've experienced this and, you know, it just occurred to me that you, you did used to do that quite often. And it's funny. And I tried to cut it out because I felt like I was undermining myself. Right. Yeah. I also thought it was pretty uh, problematic. Yeah. But then I realized that I've been making like a similar error for a while now hmm. where maybe I don't put caveats, but I'm very, very passive. Like, oh, I could be wrong. Oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Hmm. You know? Ambivalent. Yeah, sure. And I realized that I have this, this fear of sounding too certain about anything at all and i haven't been able to reconcile it reconcile it that you know i don't know i always really struggle with pronouncing that word <laughs> okay reconcile 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 reconcile, reconcile. Yeah, yeah. there we go you know i swear that's how i said it the first time <laughs> until i heard you say it and i was like oh no that was wrong that was 100 percent wrong <laughs> anywho before i get distracted with the word reconcile uh, I realize I've been doing it for a very long time. And I realized that this observation I've made without thinking about it until recently where one of our listeners gave me some, some pretty useful feedback that I had let that affect how I communicate with you mm. and how I communicate on the show in general. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult in the face of 
somebody who expresses their overconfidence all the time, especially if it's something that I've thought a lot about or I've done a lot of research on and it's a topic that you're newer to. It's, it's hard to, even if you have strong opinions that disagree, to come out forcefully with that because that's that's the kind of thing where you're just it's like you're looking for a fight you know what i mean and mm. if you don't want that and you want to have a conciliatory useful conversation it's hard to have that and it's something that i've struggled with a little bit as well in in terms of just when you're putting something out in kind of a public record like mm. i thought endlessly I, I mean the last few shows we've discussed a, a few things that i think of as rather controversial we talked about the downsides of capitalism and i came out actually with a pretty strong defense of capitalism and and i mentioned an anecdote where uh, a South African person was telling me about how back during apartheid, they were unsure about whether or not to support violent overthrow of the regime, right? Mm-hmm. And after I mentioned those things, I just thought about the fact that you're laying those things down as a public record, a public statement, and that story is true. And so there's no reason that I should be concerned about sharing that story. It's not even mm-hmm. anything that I did. It's just a story that I was told. But it seems when you wade into controversial waters like that, laying down a public record and having the potential for it to be misinterpreted or misconstrued or just people that are angry and hateful wanting to rip you apart in some way, Mm -hmm. you open yourself up to being stabbed a thousand times. And that is a really difficult thing to embrace wholeheartedly. Yes, that is what, I feel a hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes complete sense. I mean, it's why we generally try and to avoid Mm -hmm. contemporary politics, right? I mean, there's no reason to wade into things that are needlessly controversial when they're not core to the type of thing we want to discuss necessarily. But it's, it's so hard because part of providing value and talking about things that are interesting is expressing ideas and expressing opinions and, Mm -hmm you know, clearly, concisely, strongly stating these things. But the downside of that, like there's this book that maybe we'll have to read it and review it on the show because I think it is a fascinating book. Mm -hmm. But it's this book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Oh, okay. And it's about basically the, the concept around it is that on the internet, if you say the wrong thing and you do the wrong thing, even just as a normal person that like posts something on Twitter your life can be destroyed by people who decide that what you said was evil or wrong or destructive in some way. Right. And just recently I saw this where the wife of the GM of an NBA team posted something on Twitter and the GM got fired because she posted this thing on Twitter. Oof. And it involved some information that he had shared with her about the team and it was something offensive to one of the players i believe i don't remember the details and then you see this thing where roseanne the celebrity person she got fired from her show because she posted something controversial on twitter Mm. something offensive and you see this sort of thing and those are obviously big time celebrity examples but this happens to regular people where you say the wrong thing a bunch of people get riled up and you get like a twitter mob or an online mob that figures out where you live or figures out who you work for, gets you fired. And in So You've Been Publicly Shamed, there's this story about this person who basically, before they get on a plane, they say something. And then by the time they get off the plane, they've been fired and their life's been destroyed. 
you know. Right. And I mean, you see things like this, like with Bill Clinton's big controversies. Monica Lewinsky had her life completely ripped apart because of the controversies around that. And that was the sort of thing that back in the 90s could only happen if the mass media picked up your story and the general public got really riled up and angry with you mm -hmm. because you needed like presidential level fame to destroy something like that. You, or you see something like, was it, is it Michael Richards, Kramer? Oh, I, I don't know his name. Yeah, I think it's Michael Richards, but he said something racist in a stand-up show and his career was completely destroyed. But you need something like hugely public and you need to be a huge celebrity. Now you just need to be a normal person. And if you say the wrong thing online, you can have your life ripped apart. So mm. it's really difficult to feel comfortable taking strong stances when that sort of thing can come down from kind of on high and completely unexpectedly, you just happen to be picked out of a crowd and yeah. your life is ripped apart because of that. That's why I kind of wanted to talk about this. Well, no, not kind of. This is why I wanted to talk about this. Because I think being able to sort of get it out in the open and yeah. especially express ideas and opinions about this will give us some kind of catharsis mm. and it'll also sort of give our listeners an idea of you know where our heads some at. of our concerns yeah yeah and i mean these are the kinds of things that you have to work through because if you're putting something in public you have to understand the possible consequences and try to understand how you want to navigate that you know it's 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 essential when you're doing this sort of thing especially for us who are despite 26 episodes and still learning a lot right one thing i will say about this medium in particular that I really appreciate about podcasts. It's one of the reasons why I initially wanted to start this podcast with you. Mm. Something like Twitter draws in the world. Anyone can see it. Something can snowball rapidly. Mm -hmm. I mean, even something on YouTube is very easily shared and easily seen and can easily spread like wildfire, which is great if you gain popularity from it. But right. it also means that a lot of people that hate you could see it. Mm. And the nice thing about podcasts is that generally speaking, people that are listening are interested in what you're talking about. They're long enough and they're enough of a conversation that people will appreciate your intention and what you're trying to communicate. They may disagree with you. They may end up hating you, but very few people will hate you and listen to an hour long conversation. Right. And so you'd get less of that virulent negativity and people that exist in communities around podcasts and discuss a given podcast in this form of media are generally more constructive, generally more interested. Because like when you look at society generally, there are people that are positive. There are still lots of people who are constructive and want to participate in communities that are beneficial and interesting and supportive. And those sorts of people are generally drawn into podcasts and people that hate those groups are self-selected out. Right. That is something that I'm very grateful for with this medium. And I'm grateful for the listener that gave us that feedback and all of the other feedback that various listeners have given us over the last few months. We always appreciate it because it yeah. does spur thoughts. It does help us to think about the show and to think about other aspects that we don't generally think mm. about when we're in the midst of it. That's true. It's also very eye-opening because mm. I'm sure there are things you're doing wrong or I'm doing wrong that we don't notice personally and maybe we don't catch the other one doing. Of course. We know each other extremely well, so we're probably just used to little annoyances that we inflict upon each other. Right. And so something like this, getting able to get 
especially feedback from other people and sort of understand little things about ourselves we might have not understood before. Mm. I don't think it's just helpful in this regard, but I think it's also helpful in like our personal lives. Yeah. And sometimes it gives us material for our podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so after that somewhat ambivalent topic, I wanted to discuss something that I'm very optimistic about, despite the fact that it seems like the whole world is extremely pessimistic about. Okay. What is that, John? That is what I call the March of Democracy. Is that like a marching band song? <laughs> no, no, it is not. It sounds like a John Philip Sousa march, if you ask I me. I could see that, actually. Yeah. yeah. That does seem like a Sousa march, although it's yeah. a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. But no, recently there was an election. This was actually probably a month ago now, mm -hmm. but it was in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And for the first time since their independence, the first time since they've been a democracy for the last 60 years, they had a peaceful change in parties. One party has ruled, this kind of Malaysian nationalist party, has ruled for the last 60 years. And for the first time in history, they were replaced by an opposition government. This is the kind of progress that people don't recognize around the world. People in the West are incredibly depressed about their democracies and incredibly depressed about populism and think the world may be ending and democracy is crumbling and all of that. And they ignore examples like Malaysia. And they ignore examples like Myanmar, where Myanmar has all sorts of problems. Myanmar mm -hmm. also in that part of Asia, it's in South Asia or Southeast Asia, depending on where you draw the lines, mm -hmm. has had a military dictatorship for decades and decades. And right. I think it was last year that they had an election and brought in an elected government. Now, it's still not perfect. The military still has a lot of power. They've designed the constitution to keep the military in the legislature and to reserve certain powers for the military and the acting ruler of the country was not even allowed to run for president because her children have British passports, they're British citizens. And so since she had foreign children, she wasn't allowed to run for president. And that was a law designed to prevent her from running for president. So it's not perfect. And there's mm -hmm. still been all of this stuff around the Rohingyas where, you know, this minority group is being persecuted and driven out of the country. And like, there are a lot of problems. Correct. It's really sad. But it's progress. Hmm. It's considerable progress. So in Malaysia, you have considerable progress. In Myanmar, you have considerable progress. In Taiwan, you have an opposition party that took power recently, and they've only held power once before. And I guess here's, here's what I want to take a step back and look at. Mm -hmm. When you look around the world, in 1945, at the end of World War II, democracy existed in Europe, North America, and Australia. And only in a few countries in Europe, really. Mm -hmm. Since then, democracy has taken over in almost every country, to a greater or lesser extent. But if you look at places like Latin America, every country in Latin America, except perhaps if you want to bar Venezuela, and you could also argue about Central American countries and obviously Cuba. Mm. But every other country has a democracy. Many of them have increasingly stable powerful, robust democracies. You look at Brazil. Brazil had this enormous corruption scandal a few years ago. 
Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's 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 been enormous. It's ripped through the heart of the country, caused a recession. They've brought down politicians from Peru to Mexico to all over the place because of a Brazilian state firm essentially was bribing people everywhere to give them contracts. And so they brought down the president of Peru just a few months ago. But despite all of this terrible corruption that everyone's so depressed about, what it means is they have a democracy and that democracy is rooting out corruption. Now, it's not doing it perfectly. And you had the corruption in the first place. Right. But they've rooted it out. There have been consequences. They removed the leader. Which I think is extremely admirable. It's a huge step forward. Yeah. I mean... I'm sure there's a lot of governments where corruption is rampant, but you don't see their justice department going after the people in the legislature and taking them down. Well, and if you look at the president before the one that was recently removed, Dilma Rousseff, right? The one before her, Ignacio Uh Lula da Silva, he ruled for a long time Mm -hmm. and was extremely corrupt. Lots of bribery, lots of different things. And Some people say he did it to make the country run and to make sure that he got other parties on his side so he could actually get things done. And he oversaw a lot of, you know, economic growth and quite a few positive things. But the fact that he was able to be corrupt with impunity for a long period Mm -hmm. is not beneficial. Now, when his predecessor was corrupt, they rooted it out. That's a major step forward. And if you look at most countries around the world... Mm -hmm. Their democracies, I think it's hard for us in the United States because our democracy is so entrenched and it's existed for so long. Mm-hmm. If we see bad things, we think of it as a bad thing. Right. But you have to look at the rest of the world where democracy in a place like Taiwan, democracy in a place like Korea is 30 years old. Mm. 30 years old. When we were born, it was barely starting. Right. You look at places throughout Latin America, you look at places throughout Southeast Asia, it's a very similar thing. Few of these places have leaders who were born into a democratic system. Mm. Even when you look at a place like Spain, you look at a place like Italy or Germany or Eastern Europe, all of these places are strong, robust democracies. And all of them 50 years ago were not. Right. I mean- Italy already was, Germany already was by 50 years ago. But you look at World War II, they weren't, obviously. And Mm -hmm. places like Spain had Franco ruling them until relatively recently. And so this is the thing that I think we need to understand and we need to latch on to, that things around the world have become much more accountable and have progressed. And as we've talked about before, the first 30 or 40 years of a democracy are the most turbulent. They're the mm. most dangerous. They're the most likely to snap back into authoritarian rule or a dictatorship, a monarchy, some other military regime. Right. They're very likely to deteriorate very rapidly. But once they get past the first 50 years, they become more stable, they become more sustainable, and they can then persist. And most of these countries around the world are right at that marker where they're starting to pass into will probably become a long-term, sustainable, accountable democracy. We should appreciate that and we should celebrate that. And, you know, I heard an argument from a kind of high-up Singaporean politician recently. Mm -hmm. And something that he was describing was how it's peculiar that throughout the West, we're so depressed, especially about the rest of the world and the rise of the rest of the world and like the rise of China and things like that. Uh Because... 
our values and our ideals and the things that we have prized for the last 200 years, the best ideas we have, have largely been adopted around the world. Right. And the rest of the world is improving their economic position and progressing and moving forward because they've adopted these ideas. Mm. And while we cannot dominate the rest of the world in the way that we used to, right? the United States and Europe cannot dominate China and Southeast Asia and Latin America as we used to be able to. But that's because they're now bigger, better, and stronger because of our ideas, because they've mm-hmm. embraced capitalism, because many of these places have embraced democracy. And if not democracy, at least a lot of freedom. Like China, mm-hmm. for all of my criticisms of it, is enormously free compared to how it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, people couldn't choose the clothes they wanted to wear, much less drive a Tesla. Right. And now they can do just about anything they want. 120 million people left China last year. They went other places on vacation. They went other places traveling. And pretty much all of them came back to China. Back in the 80s, no one in China, or maybe a few hundred people, were allowed to leave China. Like, this is a sea change in terms of freedom right? and them embracing liberalism. And no one's going to call China a liberal country, but they have extended so much more freedom to their populace over the last 30 years. And this is happening around the world, and this has been happening around the world, and it's not reversing, it's continuing. And so I just feel that there's a lot to appreciate about the direction the world's going in. And as annoyed as people might be, as depressed as people might be about some minor setbacks that we're facing, like Mm -hmm. we really are moving the right direction in a lot of ways. Yeah. There you go. There's, There's my little rant. Absolutely. I would like to apologize for not contributing more. But sometimes John talks about things and I, I get swept up and I'm like, yeah, keep talking, bro. I'm listening. It's it's <laughs> yeah. hard not to sometimes. And that's just one of those times. It was very it was very moving. And you know, people need a little more optimism in their life and I really had nothing as valuable as what you were saying to contribute to that. And I'm okay. More with like that. a speech than a conversation. Yeah. Yes. So I appreciate your optimism. Just keep it up. Thanks. But, you know, that's a perspective that I think people should have more. And this is where, you know, you were talking about people that don't know history or doomed to repeat it. This is very recent history. And this is one of the things that I'm annoyed with with our educational system, the fact that we don't teach recent history, right? Mm. My history classes in school never taught anything past World War II. That's true. Not to mention the fact that they largely ignored most of the world. Uh-huh. And and this is one of those things that has been so useful about me moving to other parts of the world and traveling through other parts of the world. Understanding how far so many of these places have come, not just economically, but politically, and in terms of freedom for people, really makes you hopeful about where we're going. Like you look at Indonesia was a dictatorship up until a few decades ago. Mm-hmm. Malaysia has only had single party rule forever. Singapore has only had single party rule forever. They still kind of do, but they had the strongest opposition showing in their most recent election that they've ever had. You mm-hmm. you look at a lot of different places. They've they've just they're all more democratic. They're all more balanced and more free and more able to withstand a powerful, robust opposition. It's a good thing. Not only is the world so much more peaceful than it ever has been before. It's more democratic. It's richer. It's more 
economically equal. I know some people will dispute that, but the poor have become not so poor. We're progressing pretty much on all fronts. We're making major strides in the fight against climate change. Good things all around, more or less. Yeah. I mean, really, our enormous progress that we've made over the last 300 years has not turned around. We just need to continue to fight the good fight and focus on the things that really matter. Well said. Thanks. All right, John, as you always do, you've been thinking about something? Yeah. Shoot. (laughs) Okay, so I think a lot of people throughout history have seen similarities between evolution and evolutionary biology and economics. And obviously in the 19th century, it was extremely popular to kind of look at everything in society and everything in the world through the lens of evolution. You know, that's how you got eugenics and all all sorts of social Darwinism. Yes. All sorts of things. Not a lot of great ideas, but (laughs) well, some, some of them, I mean, they're interesting ideas, whether or not they're true or beneficial. Yeah. We can say that at least they were interesting. They're at least interesting. Yeah. And some of them were, as you said, extremely destructive, but there are parallels between economics and evolution. If you're looking at it from the perspective of the firm, right? So if you're thinking about the company as the organism instead of the person as the organism, you can make a lot of very interesting observations. Okay. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of zoom in on is what survives and what dies. So first, let's look at it from an evolutionary perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So what determines whether or not kind of a species continues, is whether or not they survive and whether or not their offspring survive, right? Right. That's, that's, those are the two things. So the first thing is you have to not die. True. I mean. <laughs> right. So you have yeah. to survive up until you would have children. So that's the right. first thing, right? You just have to live long enough to pop a baby that can live long enough to pop a baby. Exactly. So if you think about evolution and kind of ecosystems in life as an economic system, a system of competition where every organism is trying to get enough energy to survive. Mm. That's that's one perspective that you could look at it from. Mm-hmm. Then you also would see organisms want to be as efficient as possible. It's not so much that they desire from their perspective, but the things that are most likely to survive are the things that are going to use energy efficiently. They're not Mm -hmm. going to waste tons of energy because if you waste tons of energy, that means you need more energy, which means it's going to be harder for you to survive. So if you are using a lot of energy, then you need to acquire more energy. So every additional kind of inefficiency Mm -hmm. in energy, well, it's not inefficiency, but if you use increasing energy, then you need even more consumption than you use. Yeah. Just like that. Lions or sloths. Lions sleep like crazy number of hours. They don't do jack. It's just yeah. hunt and sleep and make babies. Right. And so every use of energy should make something more competitive in terms of their ability to hunt or their ability to forage or their ability to avoid being eaten. Mm-hmm. So in theory, that should happen, right? Right. But what's interesting when you look at animals and plants and all creatures, but in particular animals, is that there are strategies 
beyond that. Many organisms, I would say even probably most organisms, mm-hmm. have gotten to the point where they're not really on the brink of dying regularly. Mm-hmm. And they've built up other specialized things that take a huge amount of energy and offer no benefit in terms of their ability to gain food or acquire energy. Mm-hmm. The most obvious example of this, in my mind at least, is birds. Okay. Generally speaking, birds have very flamboyant feathers and very flamboyant looks, right? Mm. And if you look at something in particular like a peacock, they have an enormous amount of colorful... Plumage. Yeah, colorful plumage, exactly. I like that. And this is obviously important for mating. Right. And this is important for making sure that they have offspring and all of that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't provide any benefit in terms of surviving for themselves. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's no competitive benefit to having all of this plumage in terms of getting food or avoiding being eaten by a jaguar or something. Sure. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. And that's an interesting phenomenon to me, that something becomes so specialized and so effective in their niche that instead of continuing to evolve toward being more efficient in the way that they use energy, so rather than continuing to evolve to be better at hunting, better at avoiding being hunted, the pressures to find a mate become more important than the pressures to survive, which means that they've kind of, to go to the economic side of this, Mm -hmm. they've kind of become so good at what they do that they're making excess profits. So they have Mm. what we would call in economics, market power, right? kind of monopolistic tendencies. So they're good enough that they don't face equal competition to push them down to that economic margin where they're barely able to find food to survive. Mm -hmm. And theoretically... That kind of almost shouldn't happen because there should be absolute constant competition pushing all of these organisms to have to fight more and more to Uh get food. But see, resources aren't always just necessarily food, right? Because ultimately, the idea of survival, biologically anyways, is to pass on your seed. Right. So once you've hit a point where food is readily available or if you're an animal that doesn't have, you know, a predator that's constantly hunting you down so you don't have to be as well hidden or as fast or as effective as a prey animal should be in escaping. Mm. Your ultimate goal is to procreate. So, for example, when we're looking at peacocks, maybe they just live in an environment where the resource that they're fighting for, for survival, are mates. Right, but see, this this is the interesting thing, right? And this is where I take the analogy back to economics. So the first level of competition is survival. So if you look at a company, if a company goes bankrupt, it's done, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have enough cash coming in on a Mm -hmm. monthly basis, you go out of business. Mm -hmm. And with an animal, it's a similar thing where if you don't have enough food coming in every day, you're dead. And so that competition for a mate, that competition to procreate is kind of a second order competition. I suppose so. Do you know what I mean? I do understand, yes. Okay. Obviously, I know that that's essential for them to actually continue existing. Right. They have to procreate. But you would think, both with companies and with animals, Mm -hmm. that if you really have true competition, 
where everyone is fighting and scrapping to get every bit of food, that the creatures that would survive would be the creatures that are most adept at getting food and avoiding being eaten. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Like for peacocks, if they could get rid of their plumage and get better at consuming food and avoiding being eaten, that would presumably save them energy and make them more efficient and make it easier for them to survive. But that has become so unimportant that you're right, they've then gone to that second order competition of trying to find a mate. And it's interesting that it gets to that point. But I I don't think food or obtaining food is as difficult for animals as perhaps procreating is. But this is exactly the question. Why not? Because animals obviously benefit if it's easy for them to procreate. And you see a lot of animals like fish who produce millions sometimes of offspring that generally get eaten or destroyed or what have you. Mm -hmm. But they produce huge numbers so that they can have some of them survive, right? Right. But a lot of animals like peacocks, like a lot of different birds, like a lot of different mammals are much more selective about their mating. But in either sense, like... It should be hard for animals to survive. That's that's mm. the basic premise. Animals should be dying off all the time. I mean, like they going are. extinct all the time. Oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, if you really think about it, I'm sure there's been more species of animals that have gone extinct that have existed, right? Well, there aren't more animals that have gone extinct than have existed, but there are more animals that have gone extinct than exist today. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, that makes more sense. I phrased it yeah. wrong. All right, I'm with geez, you. I'm forgive with you. me. I'm uh, I not infallible. <laughs> but I, I guess that that is what I'm saying. Like, it's an interesting phenomenon that creatures aren't really pushed to the extreme in most cases to evolve just to be the most efficient right. consumer of food and avoider of death. And it seems obvious to us. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, mating is important and... Obviously, there are lots of creatures that do things like this. But when you look at businesses, if you were going to say to a business, like, I don't know exactly what it costs a peacock to create all of its plumage. Mm. But let's assume that it's... Genetics, baby. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... But it costs energy, right? Right. It it, It definitely does, right? So, like, let's say it costs 10% of their energy overall, right? Mm -hmm. If that provides no value for getting more food. Again, if you think about it from the perspective of business, if you think about money as food, if a business were to invest 10% of their revenue in things that don't get them any more money, everybody would look at that and be like, what are these idiots doing? This is incredibly stupid. But that's what a lot of animals are doing because they have a different priority. You were saying earlier that we're looking at the organism as in... Like the species or just an individual organism as a business? I was thinking about the individual organism, but I suppose you could look at the species. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the perspective I've had okay. when you were talking about this. Okay. So let's look at it as the species. Sure. Right. Because ultimately, the species goal is to continue. Well, actually, if you look at it from the species perspective, it's even more telling and bizarre to me because from the species perspective... They don't have any obvious reason that they would want one of the creatures within the species to mate with any other particular creature, mm-hmm. other than to have the best traits that allow them to keep on you know, surviving, find food, right. and avoid being eaten. Right. And so, 
from the species perspective, it's an even more perverse outcome that you would start to invest so much energy into producing all of this plumage because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually benefit the species in any way. I mean, it had to in some way if it's existed that way for several generations. Well, but this is my whole point. The species has so much extra energy mm-hmm. that now you've got competition within the species to get mates because the competition with other species is so negligible that they can just ignore it essentially and not focus their energy on becoming more competitive against other species. Now they're more competitive against other individuals within their own species. Mm, I see. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Like the focus of the competition changes. Okay. Because they've got so much extra energy and they're so good at eating and they're so good at avoiding being eaten that they don't have to worry about that anymore. That's no longer a pressure that is overriding and, and, influencing their evolution now it's competition within the species for mates that is this next level of competition and Mm -hmm. it completely changes the focus and it is an odd thing to think about because if you are thinking about a firm in the same way it's like instead of having the firm compete with other organizations you have different like product groups in the company competing against themselves like maybe you have let's take apple maybe you have the team making laptops against the iPhone team and they're both trying to fight to see which team will get to survive. Apparently Amazon has this Oh yeah Amazon's perfect culture of yeah of internal competition between employees to outdo other employees for the success of the company. You know Yeah. If you can outperform them, then you succeed. If you succeed we all succeed, right? Right, yeah. And then they use the profits from any parts of the organization that have really succeeded and funnel that into new teams that are competitive in creating new products and battling with the other ones, yeah. So I can see why. But what's interesting about that is once you're competing within the organization, you're no longer competing on that kind of basic level of trying to make money. You're competing to try to impress the people that are above you. Mm. So it's a similar thing. Actually, I just thought about it from this perspective, but it's a similar thing to government where if you have a one-party country or one-party state, people within the party are fighting with each other to move up in the party. If you Mm. have a multi-party state, different parties are battling each other for supremacy. You know what? I think comparing it to government does make a lot more sense, right? Think it makes more sense? Okay. Yeah, because, well, if you think about most animals, they've been around for a very long time. They're entrenched. And I know there are a lot of unstable governments that are toppling and rising and toppling and rising. But if you're part of like a stable country, then your government's probably been there for at least a few decades, right? Yeah. You have resources and obviously they're not infinite, but you have resources and you work with other governments to save each other money on trading and those sort of deals, right? So then within your own government, you're fighting each other for those positions. And so instead of looking at the way you were looking at it, right, where you were talking about money being the resource for a company and food being the resource for the animal. Yeah. I think if you look at it as a species, right, the species has been there for a long time. It's no longer about the food. It's just about moving the species forward. And a government ultimately is all about its own interests. Well, we're talking about parties, right? Are we talking about the government or the political parties? Yeah. No, the government being its own, like its own interests, right? Sure. So once, once... A species has gotten to the point where they just want to move the species forward and the government is 
kind of to the point where all they care about is their own interests, then obviously there's going to be a lot of competition within the species to try to move your genes before all the other genes because you think you have the best genes, right? And in a government, if you're an official who thinks your ideas are better than everyone else's ideas, you're obviously going to try to push for your ideas. But this, interestingly though, this should only happen if there's not competition from the outside. So if you have a one-party state, you should have this happen within the party. But if there's a lot of competition from the outside, from other parties, then those parties will want to undermine you and you have to go to battle with them. And so what the party has to be focused on, instead of infighting, instead of like moving themselves forward up the party ranks, they need to be just focused on survival of the party and maintaining their role in government. I suppose that's true. But I mean, everyone's trying to move up even if they're busy fighting off another party. I mean, granted, both of these pressures exist in both settings, but Mm -hmm. if you're focused on competition with another party, then you have a solidarity with your other party members where you act together. Like, for instance, you see in something like Stalin's Russia, where he had mass purges of people, or you see look with Mao in China, he had mass purges of his supporters. And he had these mass purges of his supporters to increase his position, to consolidate his power within the party. If you had a two-party state, like if you had that in the US, and you look at Trump and he says he fired you know, half of the people in the party and, and right. tried to remove half the people from Congress, well, he would give over his power to the Democrats. Mm-hmm. If you had a lot of infighting within the Republicans and they were going to battle with each other all the time, the Democrats would start to win and you would weaken the Republican Party. So you don't have that. This is why you see so many Republicans, even if they disagree with Trump strongly, they line up behind him because they understand that it's so important to keep the party together in order to not be kind of obliterated by the opposition. It completely changes your incentives and what you're focused on. And the fact that these different situations can exist is, I I, I don't know, it's interesting. Like, I mean, these are all examples of kind of different markets with different resources as the thing that is being competed over. But Mm -hmm. it's fascinating to look at different aspects of society and see how things like this persist and are very similar and concepts from these different areas and these different fields can be applied across other fields. I will say it it is pretty interesting. I've never really thought about it that way. And now I am definitely focused on how species and governments, at least stable governments are, are very similar to each other. Maybe that's just natural, right? To find a way to compete. Once certain areas of competition have lowered. Right. I think what we're describing is markets, right? Markets Mm -hmm. naturally arise Mm -hmm. when you have limited resources. Like we talked about scarcity and abundance at some point. I vaguely remember. When you have limited resources and not everyone can have everything that they desire, Uh then you have competition and markets arise. Individuals and organizations and in evolutionary terms, different creatures all compete for the same resources. Right. I got it now. There's the food market for animals. And then once the competition for food market dies down, boom, the mating market rises. I don't know. I got nothing. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, those are two different areas of competition where as long as you're sufficient in food, as long as you have enough food, that ceases to be an area of competition. 
and all of the excess energy above that. If you can get any excess food beyond the level that you need, then all of that excess energy gets directed into the next tier of competition, which is this competition for mates. And this is why you see with companies, they have that basic competition to make enough money. But once they start making excess money, then they redirect their efforts toward longer-term investment strategies, either acquiring other firms or research and development or anything else. Mm. I just think it's always interesting to look at these things and try to apply concepts from one field to another field and see what the parallels are and see how they relate. Mm. Anything else? Should we wrap it up? Wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Okay. You guys can find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 026. You can contact me directly if you don't want Mike to know about it at my Twitter at John Jamrob. And you can contact me if you don't want John to know about it someplace that I haven't created yet. You can contact <laughs> Mike through the while we're on the subject Twitter. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll talk to you next week, Mike. All right, talk to you then. All right, have a good one. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking for next week. Okay.
you come up with all the topics. Great. Topics are going to be about ninja. Just about ninjas? It's ninja chat. Okay. That's the plural for ninja. Really? Respect the language. Yeah. There's no S in Japanese. Yeah. But ninja is no longer Japanese. It's English. It's a hundred ninja. Hmm. I don't think I'm with you on that. Well, I'm just telling you it is what it is. But not in English. I'm not saying it in English. I'm saying it in Japanese. You said a thousand. <laughs> I don't think a thousand's Japanese. People go back and forth between languages, John. Okay. 